Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the twice-weekly podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thanks so much for tuning in wherever you are in the UK and indeed around the rest of the world. And as ever, we've got a lot to cram in in our time together. If it's okay, God, did you hear my phone? It, it just went, you know, I've been texted all over the place. People are so excited about what we've got to cram in in our time together. Yeah, if it's okay with all of you, I will reflect on what I consider to be the significance of the Liz Truss intervention, the return of Liz Truss. By the way, what self-confidence uh, the senior Tories have. It's so interesting to compare with the sort of nervous, cautious timidity of Labour and these people who've presided over chaos, Lord Frosty Frost, Liz Truss, Boris Johnson, all bouncing back as if they are prophets leading us to the promised land. And it's everybody else's fault that there's chaos. I mean, incredible self-confidence. And in a way, I have to say, I think self Confidence in uh, politics is a virtue, actually, not perhaps to the scale we have seen with that particular trio and others. Just incredible. Um, Anyway, uh, but I'm going to reflect on the significance, not so much the personality of trust, which has been much mocked since her various interventions back again on the political stage. Um, So yeah, and there's some great questions from you, some great questions about um, the discussion I have with Christian Walmar about trains and what it tells us more widely about the UK. Why can't we run a train service? Such a fundamental and tantalising question because we would all benefit from a proper train service. All of us, the economy, it's one of the reasons for low productivity. So some great questions from you on that and many other things as well. Before that, if it's um, okay with all of you, um, a few uh, notices. First of all, thank you as ever for those of you who subscribe to Patreon. You should be getting the latest podcast special in the Troublemakers series uh, on Enoch Powell. Hopefully you'll have got it by the time you get this podcast. So you'll be working out how to divide your time whilst running and baking bread to all these uh, glories which kind of accompany our other pursuits in the Rock and Roll Politics Cooperative. Uh, Just a reminder again on uh, my mini tour coming up. Uh, Quite a few uh, live shows uh, in Birmingham on March the 21st. I'm told that's sold out. I love that when I get told that. Pre-pandemic, I was getting told that all the time. Paul McCartney said, um, you know, my favourite words in the English language are sold out. Um, Well, he's had that buzz many, many times. Uh, Anyway, uh, yeah, so to go back to the mini tour, my one, not Paul McCartney's, uh, who isn't touring at the moment, but maybe he will. King's Place, March the 23rd. First at King's Place uh, this year. God, since the Christmas special. Things will be completely different by then. Belfast, March the 26th at the Black Box in Hill Street. The Rope Tackle Shoreham, March the 29th. The Witham in Barnard Castle, April the 1st. And the Old Market Theatre in Brighton on April the 24th. And the links for all of those will be in the blurb for the podcast. And if you want to join in our never-ending conversation, as well as, like Bob Dylan, our never-ending tours, uh, the email address steverick14 at iCloud.com. Dot com. Now, 
Liz Truss. Uh, yeah, I think the most interesting thing about the Liz Truss intervention is where it took place. 4,000 words in the Sunday Telegraph and an interview with uh, Spectator Television, which, with every respect to Spectator Television, is not one that commands mass audiences. I thought she might go for one of the other right-wing television channels. By the way, what a proliferation of right-wing television channels. I, I don't know what Ofcom are doing. You know, uh, I, but I thought she might go for Talk TV or GB News, uh, as Boris Johnson did in that tough, hard-listing interview with Nadine Doris. But she's gone for Spectator Television, which is, uh, again, a sort of branch in a way of the Tory party, as is the Sunday Telegraph. And so that, I think, tells us a lot. This is not an attempt by Truss to return to the political stage to convince the wider electorate uh, that she was right. It is about the internal battle within the Conservative Party. Now, that is highly significant on two levels. Although uh, for all her self-confidence that she has to return to the uh, political stage so soon after leading the economy uh, to the cliff's edge, I mean, extraordinary chutzpah, really. I mean, when you think about it, with Blair, who won three elections, Trust was in power for four weeks, he almost became an exile in Britain for a long time uh, because of the con controversy over the war in Iraq. Uh, Truss is back after being prime minister for four weeks as one of many comparisons. But the confidence is limited. This is not yet a pitch to the wider electorate as it would have had to have been if she was still prime minister. If she wanted to make a pitch to the wider electorate, she would have had to have chosen an outlet which um, is viewed by the wider electorate. Uh, she might have even had to have gone to the loathed BBC uh, if she was making such a pitch. But it was not her choice to do that. She chose instead Spectator Television, uh, which is watched by uh, some on the uh, Conservative Party uh, kind of Trussite wing. And the Sunday Telegraph similarly is the sort of Bible, along with the Daily Telegraph, of Tory party members. Uh, so this tells us a lot about her thinking and the thinking of her followers at this moment. It is partly, I think, an attempt to uh, cause trouble for Sunak. It is partly to put her case, and by the way, leaders, and this is my only defence of trust, leaders can never accept publicly or really to themselves that they were wrong in a way that kind of matches the scale of the crisis that they brought about. When those, uh, to go back to Tony Blair, asked him to apologise for the war in Iraq, that famous thing, will you apologise, this crass question asked of leaders, uh, of course he can't apologise, because if he were to do so, he would be apologising for sending British sold soldiers to their deaths needlessly. And a prime minister cannot do that. Now, I've no idea what... Uh, the internal mind of Blair thinks about Iraq. I've had hints when he has said publicly now, with uh, it's, it's utterly disingenuous, really, 
uh, that no one knew the degree to which Iraq would be uh, would descend into civil war when that was one of the many warnings made in advance of the war. But that shows some sense of contrition, as does the more obvious point that they hadn't prepared fully for the aftermath. Um, but my guess is um, he reflects and perhaps despairs more widely about what happened. Uh, you would have not, you wouldn't be a human being if you didn't. But as I say the public case can only be what he continues to say. I think it was the right thing to do. And, you know, let's see what history makes of it. Um, no doubt a part of him believes that. Uh, but similarly with Truss, it would be too much to expect of her to write an article in which she apologises for her economic revolution. Uh, uh, that would uh, end her career, really. People might say, oh, how admirable that she is so contrite. Uh, but she would be taking herself out of the political game, and clearly she doesn't want to do that. So I'm not surprised by the lack of contrition, because contrition would be an admission of culpability on a kind of colossal scale. But I do think what is interesting is she's not trying to convince uh, the wider electorate that she was right. She is trying to engage in a debate in the modern Conservative Party. And there is this um, parliamentary grouping, uh, which is basically followers of Liz Truss, and there are 50 of them, Tory MPs, who have signed up to this grouping. She is engaging with that internal debate. And she has powerful allies in that very limited debate within the Conservative Party. The newspapers, the Daily Mail, the Mail on Sunday, the Sunday Telegraph, unsurprisingly, given that they published her 4,000 words, uh, were positive uh, about the return of Liz Truss. And say, again, imagine if a Labour Prime Minister had uh, led the economy to the edge of a cliff and then popped up a few months later to claim not only that he or she was right, uh, but the plans must be implemented as soon as possible again. They would be slaughtered by um, the mail newspapers and the telegraph newspapers. But here, uh, and this is an important element in understanding the self-confidence of these people, they have powerful platforms in the media. And so she has these 50 MPs and others, actually, who haven't signed up to this group, who share her analysis. It, it's as if what happened in September and October didn't happen, that tax cuts are required and required speedily. So part of what she is doing, I mean, it's partly, no doubt, an ego trip. And again, I, you know, if you're a prime minister, even for 10 seconds, you have an ego. Um, but it's more than that. It's partly to revive the agenda in the short term, in the build-up to the March budget, putting more pressure on Hunt and Sunak to return to that tax-cutting agenda. But it's partly a debate about where the Tory party goes next. Now, this is interesting because it partly assumes, I think, that the Tories are going to lose. There is even talk of Truss fantasising that she can be leader of the opposition if they lose. As I say, forget about that. She is a fantasist if she thinks that, um, and wholly delusional. But in a way, that doesn't matter. What matters is the agenda she's espousing. And clearly, if the Tories lose the next election, there's going to be a battle for the future of the Tory party. And this agenda, 
of tax cuts and the assumption that they inevitably lead speedily to economic growth combined with a smaller state that they believe leads to better public services uh, and economic growth uh, is going to be part of that post-election debate. But the other thing that is so interesting is the degree to which the Tory party uh, mirrors the Labour Party of the uh, late 70s and 1980s, in that, in a way that on one level I think is rather virtuous but electorally disastrous, uh, they have become gripped by a battle of ideas. So if you go to a Conservative Party conference now, the fringe meetings fizz with right-wing ideas. It's mainly a battle on the right, you know, whether you are Sunakites, fiscal conservatives, or Trussite, tax cuts now, tax cuts now. But there is, you know, the occasional breath from uh, One Nation Tories as well. And we've seen that, incidentally, in recent days, in some of them expressing opposition to this attempt by number 10 uh, under Sunak to assume a kind of populist swagger by threatening to pull out of the European Convention on Human Rights and some Tory MPs saying they will vote against it. And that's more, though not wholly, the kind of one-nation wing of Tories. Um, So everywhere you look, there is this um, fizzing of ideas, some shallow, like the Trussites, some quite interesting, like uh, Nick Timothy's ideas to turn the Tories more into a party of the Christian Democrats. Um, uh, Some of you uh, responded positively to the interview I did with Nick Timothy on a recent podcast. Others of you uh, said, you know, well, hold on, what what about his role in X, Y, and Z, and Brexit, and other things? It's fair enough, but you, you, you can't deny that there is a sort of interesting agenda there that is very different from the Trust one, very different from the Sunak one, and they're all battling it out. Um, and so you have, it's you know, Labour in the 80s, you know, the, the, the Benites versus uh, the Kinnockites versus the sort of Hattersleyite social Democrats. And then, of course, you had the SDP splitting away from Labour as some Tories might split uh, away and join the reform group and God knows what else um, in this current period of turmoil in the Tory party. So meanwhile, Labour on the other side are timid and scared to utter ideas to back their incremental policies, let alone have a fight over it. And that's one of the reasons why they are 20 points ahead in the polls. But, you know, the the sort of unity is with and, and discipline is what used to win Tory parties election after election after election. Though I have to say in parenthesis, that governing parties are much stronger when they are buttressed by a wider sense of purpose and ideas. Uh, Look at the Tories again in the 1980s, absolutely driven by a sense of ideological verve and purpose, uh, as well as a kind of intimidating self-discipline compared with Labour who, you know, kind of, uh, I remember bumping into the very sort of innocent figure uh, from the left, Michael Meacher, who came to uh, talk to uh, us a lot when we were at university. 
it was very interesting to see these people in real life. I got so excited, even by Michael Meacher. And I saw him in the loo um, afterwards, and we were in the loo, and I said, what's the mood, you know, of the Labour Party? And Meacher, who was one of Life's Innocents, said, uh, it's a cauldron of hate. So that was Labour then. Now, there are intense uh, divisions between the sort of Corbynista wing and the rest, but there is broadly a self-discipline at the moment as the next election moves closer. And in the Tory side, you have all these kind of factions that make it very difficult for Sunak. And that really is the ultimate irony of which Truss is a reminder that Sunak inherited what should be a dream, a near landslide majority arising from that December 2019 election. But actually, he kind of leads a near minority government because of all this factionalism. And the build-up to the budget is going to be very interesting uh, because we know the Sunak Trust position. They are actually the purer Thatcherites, balancing the book Conservatives. Trust brought in Osborne's um, uh, chief advisor from the 2010 uh, government to be one of his advisors at the Treasury uh, and so on. They kind of want to follow the... Osborne economics at the beginning of this coalition, but they are trying to navigate that path with screams from uh, the Trussites, the newspapers, some others who haven't signed up to this group on the Tory benches who want tax cuts, tax cuts, tax cuts. It's always their path to the promised land. Um, It's a kind of instinctive thing which isn't really thought through. Um, but difficult to resist when there are so many of them. So this move from her, uh, it's less interesting about her because I don't think she'll be making a comeback as a leader, uh, even if they're slaughtered at the next election. Uh, Because, by the way, some of the blame will be on her. And the Tory party members might be evangelical in their uh, right-wingery and support for a small state, Uh, But I think when there is a reckoning, if there is a reckoning, I mean, we don't know what the outcome of the election will be yet. She will have a lot to answer for, even internally. But the agenda remains potent internally. And uh, that is, I think, its um, significance for now. And now, if it's all right with all of you, I'm going to, I'm just tapping up my computer to uh, get some of the questions out that I've selected. I don't know why I've put on a silly voice, but every now and again, I like to lapse into a silly voice. Yeah, so just a reminder, if you want to join in the discussion in our growing rock and roll politics cooperative, it's stevrick14 at icloud.com. So many questions. I'm going to do a question time special again soon. Um, but uh, in the meantime the last podcast I had a conversation with the transport expert Christian Warmer he really is an expert he's written ton, a mountain of books on the railways and other uh, aspects of uh, transport Anyway, from Stephen Townsley, this is quite, this is interesting. I took the Tyne and Weir metro recently. Mostly I use the bus. 
on the Metro, an announcement came out as I stood on the platform. They apologised for the delay to the service. They said that the reason was a shortage of trains. The trains on the Metro are more than 40 years old. They're kept going by efficient use of parts from broken trains. Northeast transport, it doesn't happen in London. Yeah, I was uh, when I was up in Newcastle recently, I just thought, what a fantastic, vibrant city. And I was excited using the metro and uh, went down to see some friends in Tynemouth uh, via the metro from the uh, St. James's Park station, because that's where I was uh, staying, right opposite Newcastle United. And that, yeah, there were problems then, uh, lots of delays and so on. And I didn't realise the issue was partly that they haven't invested and modernised trains. But, Stephen, when you say it doesn't happen in London, that's a really dangerous course to take because what you are implying is that, in a way, there should be less focus on London's transport and more on the northeast. Whereas what you should be arguing is there should be as much focus in the northeast as there is in London. And, um, you know, fares in London for many are still very expensive. But uh, it does work, and it works because of that structural change. I won't go on about it again, uh, but the Mayor of London, the Transport for London, the accountability of the Mayor, capacity to bring in experts who themselves are accountable, has worked. Uh, And of course, it's about investment too. But thank you, uh, Stephen. Uh, Dorothy Aitken writes, oh, she said, thank you for the discussion with Christian Walmart. Uh, Oh, she says, what an inspirational man. I wouldn't go that far, Dorothy. You know, I mean, he's all right. His enthusiasm and good sense were heartwarming. Wouldn't be wondered if even a fraction of his vision could be realised. Yeah, I think, Dorothy, the whole of the vision should be realised because it's so, it's just common sense that a good public transport system, he mentioned the um, uh, ambitious fare schemes in Germany, it drives economic growth and is good for well-being. You know, it's quite fashionable now in government to use well-being as a measure of um, both economic performance and economic and, and, and quality of life. And we just have this rubbish set up um, that's bad for everything. So I hope his whole vision is realised and fast. Um, there should be no more hanging around and accepting these crap services. A friend of mine, has got you know, literally, I think hours after uh, my conversation with uh, Christian Warm, I got an email from somebody coming to stay from uh, the northeast, and she said, "Look, can I stay another night, uh, Sunday night? There are just no trains back. It would be a sort of six-hour trip, start starting." not at King's Cross, but Tottenham Hale, three changes. This is bonkers, anyway. Let's uh, move on. Thank you, Dorothy. Matthew Ryder. I wanted to ask if you were considering devoting one of your podcasts to the civil service. Some commentators feel that the civil service has become more politicised since Boris Johnson's time as Prime Minister. How much truth do you feel there is in this? Uh, And what's your take on Simon Case, the current uh, Cabinet Secretary and Head of the Civil Service? I do recall similar comments about politicisation when Margaret Thatcher was in power. Well, Matthew, I can tell you, uh, uh, you've got a treat in store very soon, uh, an interview with a very uh, prominent figure who knows uh, this uh, issue inside out coming up. Uh, So do tune in for that one, Matthew. Yeah, The key thing to do for all of you is subscribe, then you get these things like the delivery of a newspaper in the olden days. 
Henry Mitchley, uh, to what extent, this is interesting, to what extent do you think the problems in the UK at the moment are caused by the historically dominant UK political party, the Conservatives, being unable to get a majority for government since 2016 and arguably 2010? Uh, how far do you think this actual lack of electoral success, even whilst technically win- winning, has informed the difficulty of managing the party since 2010? Uh, Henry says, I love the podcast. I'm going to try to get to one of the live shows, though it depends on my university teaching schedule. Henry, the live shows will enhance your university teaching schedule. Got to be prioritised. Bring the students. But to your substantial point, it is interesting. Say if the Tories had won a big majority in 2010. Well, actually, uh, one of Cameron's strengths, and it really was a strength, is he managed an even then difficult parliamentary party well on the whole, apart from his huge flaw of trying to appease the Eurosceptics, when it was obvious if he had followed his history that they would just uh, carry on uh, asking for more. But he kept that coalition going and he managed, you know, Nick Clegg and the Lib Dems with such manipulative charm. That was a skill. Uh, If they had had a bigger majority, I think the agenda would have been not that different because uh, Clegg mistakenly uh, accepted uh, George Osborne's economic policy. Uh, for real terms, spending cuts, which is what they would have done anyway. And at times, I know the Tories couldn't quite believe how much of their agenda they were getting through then. But clearly for Theresa May, when she lost the small majority that Cameron won in 2015 in the election, uh, the early election she held in 2017, made her life a form of hell and the parliamentary party became impossible to manage. But now you see, as we've already discussed uh, with Sunak, he's got this theoretical huge majority but he can't manage this parliamentary party. So it has been an issue at times, certainly with May post-2017, but I don't think it explains the whole narrative of this long period of Conservative uh, rule. Yeah, now Andy Davis, our favourite white van driver and listening. Andy uh, says, I'd like to share another possible outcome. Uh, as laid out brilliantly by Ahir Shah on the latest Oh God, What Now? By the Oh God, What Now? They're produced by the Podmasters, as am I. Uh, So we are part of a wider coalition, to use a political term, that after the election, the Conservatives virtually disappear because they become as irrelevant to the general public as early 20th century liberals. Uh, And then he, such as his devotion... Andy, to Ahir Shah, that he writes, my transcription is not exact, but here it is roughly. The Tories have boxed themselves in by becoming, particularly since the 80s, the party of the asset-holding classes, who are all becoming older, more nimbyish and reactionary. Bit like a failing Ponzi scheme, those in it for a long time have done very well, but because they have become unattractive to younger voters, they're not getting anything like the numbers of new entrants to keep the whole thing from collapsing. Andy adds, driver Andy, he calls himself. By the way, he's offered to help us all out, driver Andy. So if you need a van, uh, love and power to the collective. Uh, He says, somewhere out there early on a Tuesday, dodging potholes and listening with keen interest. Uh, Well, Andy, on this, um, I disagree with Ahir Shah and you. Um, You know, uh, there was a book written 
during that long period of labour rule, the strange death of conservative England. And within years, they were back in power for what seemed like an eternity. And you've got to remember that they have only appeared really vulnerable since the Truss era and the whole Johnson implosion over Partygate. Before that, you know, Johnson gained Hartlepool in a by-election. So I don't think... I know Danny Finkelstein, uh, the Times columnist and Tory peer, has said that one option uh, that needs to be considered amongst many is the Tories do worse at the next election than in 1997. I'd be surprised. I work on the assumption that given half a chance, uh, England uh, supports the Conservatives. But, uh, but clearly at the moment, that is not the case. And it's interesting to see what has brought it about. It's like with uh, John Major falling out of the exchange rate mechanism, uh, a sterling crisis under the Tories tends to propel them towards doom. Uh, Major was never ahead in the polls again after the Sterling crisis. And after the economic crises, many crises triggered by the Quartain budget, the Tories have been miles behind. So let's see. I say it's, it's, politics are as fascinating as ever. Some have said to me, God, you know, after the volcanic eruptions of last summer, it kind of feels uh, quieter. It's not quiet. A lot going on. Thank you, uh, Driver Andy. Uh, Joe Erber have been enjoying uh, the uh, Thursday-Friday specials uh, and the Christian Walmart one. Joe says, uh, the need to run the railways for the public good seems quite blindingly obvious. Why do you think it is that the public have to put up with false arguments about the needs for efficiency and for it to be run as a business? And why did Blair's government double down so much on keeping it private, given the solid arguments expressed in your conversation with Christian Walmart? It's a very uh, interesting question. Oh, by the way, before responding to it, Joe says, I also agree uh, that it's the most civilised way to get around. If I'm not driving to gigs, transporting equipment, it's a breath of fresh air to be able to read a book or listen to a podcast without the increasingly antisocial driving you encounter on the roads. Well, good luck with the gigs, Joe. I agree. When I'm going to gigs, I prefer going by uh, train. So, yeah, good luck with your gigs. On to the wider point. Ownership is the great taboo in British politics, with the partial exception of the railways, where somewhat vaguely uh, Labour uh, is committed to uh, forms of uh, public ownership of the uh, train operating companies when contracts run out. But uh, certainly under new Labour, it was definitely a taboo. And it was one of the areas where Blair and Brown were absolutely agreed that Thatcher broadly had won the arguments over private ownership. But I don't think it should be a taboo when you see the chaos that has arisen in some of the uh, privatised uh, areas. Trains famously, but also, you know, look at the water supplies and all that sewage being pumped up into the seas and so on. So there is an argument now, I think, to be grasped about ownership. But it is it is an area, you know, Labour, again, compared with Liz Trust, the kind of they're scared of headlines about returning to the 1970s. They want to make that uh, gap with uh, Jeremy Corbyn, who mistakenly was going to sort of nationalise everything right away, which would have been astronomically expensive just to arrange the administrative handover. So they want to kind of establish a gap there by not really talking about it. Uh, But there is space for that conversation at the moment uh, because of the chaos we're experiencing 
you know, why isn't Britain working? It's not, you know, sticking plaster politics is a good slogan from Keir Starmer. But you've got to go into why they're having to apply these sticking plasters all over the place. Uh, And that takes you deeper. And it takes you into areas such as ownership. Now, talking of which, uh, of course, because uh, I did the interview with Nick Timothy, where he was reviving his ideas about the good the state can do, which he tried to implement fleetingly. Anyway, I've had an email from Andrew Andrew O'Brien, who said, I enjoyed your interview with Nick Timothy about his conservatism and the subsequent discussion with your listeners about whether his ideas have any following in the conservative uh, party. Nick's views on China have a wide following, as you know, but economically and socially, the left economics, the right culture space, there is a small but potentially significant cohort of MPs that are breaking free of the grip of the 1980s. See, that's this is me speaking. It's interesting because... You know, as we've discussed on this podcast, there is this still intoxication with the 1980s. So it's interesting. Specifically, now back to the email, you may have seen the new social covenant unit, which was set up before the pandemic by Danny Kruger and Miriam Cates, and that has published a couple of publications, uh, both launched at the Conservative conferences with Nick Timothy. Uh, Social capitalism, launched by 12 MPs, is themed around how a strong sense of national identity and one nation values is essential to economic growth, not tax cuts and deregulation, as Thatcherites claim, and trusting the people a call for reform across the economy, public services, and critically along Nick's lines around business and the economy was launched by 10 MPs. Michael Gove, interestingly, also endorsed and spoke at the launch of both these papers. I can speak with some knowledge as I helped research and draft some of these pamphlets and was at the roundtables where the ideas were discussed in detail. And I'm starting as director of the policy at the think tank Demos, where I hope we can take forward this debate about the future of conservatism beyond the 1980s. Thank you, Andrew, uh, and for your other suggestions, which I'll uh, follow up. Um, Yeah, this is interesting. And in a way, reassuring to know that as well, we've talked about the impact of trust, which says, I think, nothing to do with her personality, but with her agenda. And it needs countering. And, And one of the keys is numbers within that parliamentary party. So it is interesting that there are ideas and there are some numbers still, uh, uh, maybe Andrew, you think there are more ready to sign up, but still relatively small. But there is going to be, whether the Conservatives win or lose, but especially if they lose, one hell of a battle of ideas. And will those ideas lead finally to a shift away from this extraordinary intoxication with a decade, the 1980s, which is so far removed from the challenges of now. Anyway, thank you very much. Uh, Let's move on. God, we've got so many questions. Thank you all. I know know, the hundreds can't read them all out, but let's move on. Uh, Michael uh, Blenkinson. A win for the Labour Party at the next election is certainly looking likely. However, considering the uh, level of uh, contempt towards the Conservatives currently with the NHS on the verge of collapse uh, scandals, etc., the UK being the only G7 country going into recession, it's surely possible the Conservatives lose by a margin that we've never seen before. Ah, right, so you're raising the same question as uh, Andy. Well, I've given the answer Michael, uh, who says he listens to the podcast by our long walk to university. Oh, what a what a romantic vision, uh, Michael, of your walk. I hope it's in spectacular countryside as you do that hour long walk. 
But you know my view, I disagree. I don't think uh, there's going to be this uh, wipeout. And uh, I think, you know, you, you should never underestimate the capacity of the Conservatives to fight back. They've got lots of levers uh, in England. Uh, but, you know, who knows? I mean, I might be wrong. Let's move on. James Beard, he's been doing a bit of research on behalf of all of us at the cooperative. He says, uh, oh, he likes the two shows. Oh, thank you very much. Two shows a week. By happy coincidence, he gets the, uh, these shows. These are the days when I have to make a particularly long journey to work. And your insightful views and questions from the cooperative help to keep me entertained when driving. Ah, oh, yeah, you're like with Andy, uh, driving around uh, with on the uh, podcast. Say so some of us try to take the train when they run, but that's so rare. We're all having to drive these days. Anyway, I'd be interested in your views on the post-prime ministerial activities of Boris Johnson. I've been looking at his recent interest in the Register of Members' Financial Interests. It's been widely reported that uh, Mr Johnson is being paid substantial sums for various overseas speaking engagements. However, until I sat down and looked at the detail, I'd failed to appreciate the full extent of his activities. Between October 22 and January 23, the former Prime Minister has undertaken seven engagements in five different countries and earned a staggering £1,733,693. Uh, he, and he lists them. And, he's, and then he says, like most of your podcast listeners, I like a good speech. However, even I think this sum of money for 58 hours and 15 minutes of work is obscene. Is it as much as 58 hours? Mr. Johnson's hourly rate of £29,730 is not far off the annual average UK salary. No doubt he made a few good jokes. Yeah, well, thank you for doing the detailed research. They're all available on the uh, Register of MPs' interests. Yeah, what a what a pay rate. It is utterly perverse, this thing. You know, I remember when uh, William Hague was Conservative leader, and certainly when Theresa May was Conservative leader, they almost had to pay for people to come and listen to them. And the moment they leave, they're massively in demand on these vast scales of pay. You know, uh, Theresa May has earned millions, and no one would claim, including herself, that she is one of life's more spellbinding speeches. But there she is. William Hague is a spellbinding speechmaker. But I can tell you, when he was leader of the Tory party, few listened. It is one of the strangest things. And the market is extraordinary for these um, uh, after-dinner speeches. Some of these leaders, Boris Johnson, no doubt, can do it off the top of their head. He will not, I suspect, put in a great deal of preparation for these speeches. And the money pause in. The issue is really, given that the market exists, you know, you can see why Cameron and Blair resigned immediately to get in on this market because they then don't have to declare. I mean, Boris <laughs> Johnson just isn't embarrassed. Uh, he doesn't suffer from embarrassment. I think he suffers from a degree of melancholic self-doubt combined, as I said last time, with, with layers of delusion or Churchillian grandeur. But he's not embarrassable. Uh, else he would have kind of left the planet some time ago. So he just declares all these figures. But it kind of raises questions. Maybe he transcends such questions. 
about political priorities and what is the duty of an MP, even a ex-prime minister who remains on the backbenches, and how much time can he commit to that, given that he's travelling the world earning a fortune? Although, frankly, he won't spend much time preparing for them. You deliver them and can fly back. Um, it is living the dream. And I'm available for all such speeches, uh, and my rate is slightly less than Boris Johnson's. So I think on that we better stop. Um, uh, just make the invitations, and I'll come. I'll be better than Boris Johnson. Um, thank you very much indeed for tuning in. We've got a great guest coming up uh, at the end of this week, so look out for that. And say the best way to do it is to subscribe. Um, and oh yeah, uh, if you could leave a review, that would be brilliant. But only if you're thrilled with what we're all up to on this podcast. Uh, in the meantime, uh, good luck with walking to work, running to work, baking, having a whiskey whilst listening to the podcast. And say, so do look out for the next one. We've got a, it'll be a terrific interview, Touchwood. And um, yeah, let's get together again soon to make sense of it all. Okay, take care. Bye. <laughs>